The Light January 2018 Issue International Organ of the Center for the Worldwide Ahmadiyya Anjuman Isha'at Islam The only Islamic organization upholding the finality of prophethood Webcasting on the world's first real-time Islamic service at www.virtualmosque.co.uk Articles The Call of the Messiah by Hazrat Mirza Ulam Ahmed Why Religion is Not Going Away and Science Will Not Destroy It by Peter Harrison A Critical Look at Extremist Ideology Through the Microscope of the Holy Quran by Ibrahim Muhammad Frist Article The Call of the Messiah by Hazrat Mirza Ulam Ahmed The Promised Messiah and Mahdi Translator's Note, although given in quotation marks, the Quranic references are explanations rather than literal translation of the verse quoted. Treatment of Others As for faith, I will now consider the course pointed out by the Holy Quran for observance in practice. This verse summarizes its teachings regarding our treatment with others. Almighty God commands you to be just and fair to others. That is to say that you do to them as they do to you. And, if you wish to attain to a higher stage of perfection, then do good to those who have not done any good to you. And, to rise higher still, do good to others not to lay an obligation upon them or to receive thanks in return, but with the natural inclination of a mother for her child. And he forbids you to do any violence or remind others that you have placed them under any obligation or do any evil to the one who has done you good or shown sympathy. Chapter 16 verse 90 As an explanation of this verse, the Holy Quran says on another occasion, And they, the righteous, feed the poor and the orphans and the prisoners, simply for the sake of, and out of their love for, God, and do not wish from you any reward or thanks in return for this service. Chapter 76 verse 8-9 Again, concerning the requital of evil, the Holy Quran says this. The recompense for an evil is punishment like it. But if a person forgives and his forgiveness encourages good and does not lead to further evil, under these circumstances forgiveness is better than requital. And the person so forgiving shall find his reward from God, for instance, the evildoer is likely to reform his conduct and refrain from evil in the future. Chapter 42 verse 40. Thus. The Holy Quran does not teach us to turn the other cheek always, whether in place or out of place, for this is against true wisdom. Good done to an evildoer is sometimes equivalent to the doing of harm to a good man. The Holy Quran further teaches us as follows. If anyone does good to you, return his good deed with a greater good, and the result would be that even if there is an enmity between you, it will turn into sincere friendship and he would be to you as a friend and near relative. Chapter 41 VRSC 34 Other verses containing teachings on this point are, One of you should not backbite another, does one of you like that he should eat the flesh of his brother who is dead? Nor should one class of people laugh at another that it belongs to a higher class and the other to a lower, it may be that those laughed at it, might be better than the others. Verily, to God, the more honored is he who is greater in virtue and righteousness. To him, the distinction of nationality means nothing. Do not call others with scornful names which they regard as offensive or insulting. Otherwise, you will be counted wicked near God. Chapter 49 verses 11 to 13, Keep away from idols and falsehood, for they are both impurities. And when you speak, speak with reason and wisdom and refrain from irrational talk. 
Chapter 25 verse 72, And you should all in one body and with all your faculties and powers devote yourselves to the obedience of God. Chapter 3 verse 103 The many occupations of the world divert your mind from God, and you remain negligent from Him until you visit the graves. This is an error, and you will soon know it. I tell you again that this is an error which you will soon discover. Had you the knowledge of certainty, you would have soon seen by its application your hell, and would have known that this your life in sin is a hellish life. If your certainty increases, you would see with the eye of certainty that your life of sin and disobedience to God is a life in hell. A time will then come when you will be cast into hell. And, there, you will be questioned about your excesses in the delicacies that were given to you, i.e., being made to suffer the punishment you will realize that certainty, dot. Chapter 102, these verses show that certainty is of three kinds. First, that obtained through reasoning and deduction. An example is that the existence of fire in a place is inferred from the presence of smoke only. Secondly, the certainty gained when the thing itself is seen like the fire in the above example. Thirdly, the highest degree of certainty is attained when the existence of a thing is fully realized as that of fire by casting one's hand into it. These are the three degrees of certainty which are termed respectively Hakul Yakin, Anul Yakin and Alimul Yakin. In these verses Almighty God has taught man that his true happiness lies in the nearness and love of God, and in breaking connection with him a man leads a hellish life which ultimately becomes clear to him, though it be at the time when he is about to depart from this world and leave all his property behind him. Referring to man's heavenly life, the Holy Quran says this. Whoever out of respect for the honor and majesty of his Lord, and fearing that he shall have to stand one day in his presence, forsake sin, shall be granted two paradises, that is, a paradise in this world and a paradise in the next. Chapter 55 verse 46, The paradise in this world means a heavenly life which begins with a pure transformation in this life when Almighty God becomes the sole administrator of one's affairs and the paradise in the next means the eternal bliss and enjoyments of afterlife which shall be granted to the righteous. Elsewhere the Holy Quran says, Verily we have prepared chains and collars and that which burns the heart for those who do not believe in God, and hence do not entertain love for God and are bent low upon earth. Their feet are enchained with the love of this world and in their necks are collars of estrangement from God which keep their heads bent down upon the world and do not allow them to raise them up towards heaven and their hearts burn with the unsatisfied desires of this world. But the righteous are made to drink in this very world of a cup which is mixed with camphor which cools the love of this world and quenches the thirst of seeking the world. It is a spring of camphor which is granted them, and they divide it into running streams and thus place its refrigerant waters within reach of the thirsty near and far. When the standing water of the spring is made to run into a stream, and the power of faith is strengthened, they are then made to drink of another cup with which is mixed ginger. For when the camphorated cup has benumbed the love of this world, another syrup is needed which should generate in the heart the warmth of divine love. This is what is meant by the syrup mixed with ginger because the quality of ginger is hot, and it is, therefore, a symbolic expression for the warmth of love. It is a spring which is called salzabil, lit, ask the way from God meaning that when the wayfarer has reached the spiritual eminence indicated in the preceding verse, he is entirely in the hands of God and asks his way from no other than God, chapter 76 verse 4. Again, 
the Holy Quran says, Verily he who has purified his soul is released from the constraint of sensual passions and is granted a heavenly life, but whoever remains bent down upon earth and does not turn to heaven, shall end his days in grief and despair. Chapter 91 verse 8 to 10 End of article Next article Why religion is not going away and science will not destroy it By Peter Harrison Note this article was originally published at https//en.co and has been republished here under Creative Commons. See, https//en.co//ideas//why religion is not going away and science will not destroy it. About the author. Peter Harrison is an Australian Laureate Fellow and Director of the Institute for Advanced Studies in the Humanities at the University of Queensland. His most recent book is The Territories of Science and Religion, 2015, and his edited collection Narratives of Secularization, 2017, will be published later this year. In 1966, just over 50 years ago, the distinguished Canadian-born anthropologist Anthony Wallace confidently predicted the global demise of religion at the hands of an advancing science, belief in supernatural powers is doomed to die out, all over the world as a result of the increasing adequacy and diffusion of scientific knowledge. Wallace's vision was not exceptional. On the contrary, the modern social sciences, which took shape in 19th century Western Europe, took their own recent historical experience of secularization as a universal model. An assumption lay at the core of the social sciences, either presuming or sometimes predicting that all cultures would eventually converge on something roughly approximating secular, Western, liberal democracy. Then something closer to the opposite happened. Not only has secularism failed to continue its steady global march but countries as varied as Iran, India, Israel, Algeria and Turkey have either had their secular governments replaced by religious ones, or have seen the rise of influential religious nationalist movements. Secularization, as predicted by the social sciences, has failed. To be sure, this failure is not unqualified. Many Western countries continue to witness decline in religious belief and practice. The most recent census data released in Australia, for example, shows that 30% of the population identify American Samoa having no religion, and that this percentage is increasing. International surveys confirm comparatively low levels of religious commitment in Western Europe and Australasia. Even the United States, a long-time source of embarrassment for the secularization thesis, has seen a rise in unbelief. The percentage of atheists in the U.S. now sits at an all-time high, if high is the right word, of around 3 percenter. Yet, for all that, globally, the total number of people who consider themselves to be religious remains high, and demographic trends suggest that the overall pattern for the immediate future will be one of religious growth. But this isn't the only failure of the secularization thesis. Scientists, intellectuals and social scientists expected that the spread of modern science would drive secularization that science would be a secularizing force. But that simply hasn't been the case. If we look at those societies where religion remains vibrant, their key common features are less to do with science, and more to do with feelings of existential security and protection from some of the basic uncertainties of life in the form of public goods. A social safety net might be correlated with scientific advances but only loosely, 
and again the case of the U.S. is instructive. The U.S. is arguably the most scientifically and technologically advanced society in the world, and yet at the same time the most religious of Western societies. As the British sociologist David Martin concluded in The Future of Christianity, 2011 there is no consistent relation between the degree of scientific advance and a reduced profile of religious influence, belief, and practice. The story of science and secularization becomes even more intriguing when we consider those societies that have witnessed significant reactions against secularist agendas. India's first Prime Minister Jawaharlal Nehru championed secular and scientific ideals, and enlisted scientific education in the project of modernization. Nehru was confident that Hindu visions of a Vedic past and Muslim dreams of an Islamic theocracy would both succumb to the inexorable historical march of secularization. There is only one-way traffic in time, he declared. But as the subsequent rise of Hindu and Islamic fundamentalism adequately attests, Nehru was wrong. Moreover, the association of science with the SEC Ularising agenda has backfired, with science becoming a collateral casualty of resistance to secularism. Turkey provides an even more revealing case. Like most pioneering nationalists, Mustafa Kemal Atatürk, the founder of the Turkish Republic, was a committed secularist. Atatürk believed that science was destined to displace religion. In order to make sure that Turkey was on the right side of history, he gave science, in particular evolutionary biology, a central place in the state education system of the fledgling Turkish Republic. As a result, evolution came to be associated with Atatürk's entire political program, including secularism. Islamist parties in Turkey, seeking to counter the secularist ideals of the nation's founders, have also attacked the teaching of evolution. For them, evolution is associated with secular materialism. This sentiment culminated in the decision this June to remove the teaching of evolution from the high school classroom. Again, science has become a victim of guilt by association. The U.S. represents a different cultural context where it might seem that the key issue is a conflict between literal readings of Genesis and key features of evolutionary history. But in fact, much of the creationist discourse centers on moral values. In the U.S. case too, we see anti-evolutionism motivated at least in part by the assumption that evolutionary theory is a stalking horse for secular materialism and its attendant moral commitments. As in India and Turkey, secularism is actually hurting science. In brief, Global secularization is not inevitable and, when it does happen, it is not caused by science. Further, when the attempt is made to use science to advance secularism, the results can damage science. The thesis that science causes secularization simply fails the empirical test, and enlisting science as an instrument of secularization turns out to be poor strategy. The science and secularism pairing is so awkward that it raises the question, why did anyone think otherwise? Historically, two related sources advanced the idea that science would displace religion. First, 19th-century progressivist conceptions of history, particularly associated with the French philosopher Auguste Comte, held to a theory of history in which societies pass through three stages religious, metaphysical, and scientific, or positive. Kant coined the term sociology and he wanted to diminish the social influence of religion and replace it with a new science of society. Kant's influence extended to the Young Turks and Atatürk. 
the 19th century also witnessed the inception of the conflict model of science and religion. This was the view that history can be understood in terms of a conflict between two epochs in the evolution of human thought the theological and the scientific. This description comes from Andrew Dixon White's influential A History of the Warfare of Science with Theology in Christendom, 1896, the title of which nicely encapsulates its author's general theory. White's work, as well as John William Draper's earlier history of the conflict between religion and science, 1874, firmly established the conflict thesis as the default way of thinking about the historical relations between science and religion. Both works were translated into multiple languages. Draper's history went through more than 50 printings in the U.S. alone, was translated into 20 languages and, notably, became a bestseller in the late Ottoman Empire, where it informed Ataturk's understanding that progress meant science superseding religion. Today, people are less confident that history moves through a series of set stages toward a single destination. Nor, despite its popular persistence, do most historians of science support the idea of an enduring conflict between science and religion. Renowned collisions, such as the Galileo Affair, turned on politics and personalities, not just science and religion. Darwin had significant religious supporters and scientific detractors, as well as vice versa. Many other alleged instances of science-religion conflict have now been exposed as pure inventions. In fact, contrary to conflict, the historical norm has more often been one of mutual support between science and religion. In its formative years in the 17th century, modern science relied on religious legitimation. During the 18th and 19th centuries, natural theology helped to popularize science. The conflict model of science and religion offered a mistaken view of the past and, when combined with expectations of secularization, led to a flawed vision of the future. Secularization theory failed at both description and prediction. The real question is why we continue to encounter proponents of science-religion conflict. Many are prominent scientists. It would be superfluous to rehearse Richard Dawkins's musings on this topic, but he is by no means a solitary voice. Stephen Hawking thinks that science will win because it works, Sam Harris has declared that science must destroy religion, Steven Weinberg thinks that science has weakened religious certitude, Colin Blakemore predicts that science will eventually make religion unnecessary. Historical evidence simply does not support such contentions. Indeed, it suggests that they are misguided. So why do they persist? The answers are political. Leaving aside any lingering fondness for quaint 19th-century understandings of history, we must look to the fear of Islamic fundamentalism, exasperation with creationism, an aversion to alliances between the religious right and climate change denial, and worries about the erosion of scientific authority. While we might be sympathetic to these concerns, there is no disguising the fact that they arise out of an unhelpful intrusion of normative commitments into the discussion. Wishful thinking hoping that science will vanquish religion is no substitute for a sober assessment of present realities. Continuing with this advocacy is likely to have an effect opposite to that intended. Religion is not going away any time soon, and science will not destroy it. If anything, it is science that is subject to increasing threats to its authority and social legitimacy. Given this, science needs all the friends it can get. 
its advocates would be well advised to stop fabricating an enemy out of religion, or insisting that the only path to a secure future lies in a marriage of science and secularism. End of article. Next article. A critical look at extremist ideology through the microscope of the Holy Quran. By Ibrahim Mohammed. The current generation of Muslims has been plagued by incessant waves of extremism over the last decades, which have caused much mayhem and confusion in its ranks. The endearing landscape of Islam, a religion of peace based entirely on absolute monotheism and the unity of humankind, has been invaded by the weeds of sectarian division spawned by archaic, debilitating ideologies opposed to the spirit and letter of the Holy Quran and the example of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, s. In the late 19th, early 20th century the founder of the revivalist Ahmadiyya movement in Islam, Mirza Ulam Ahmad addressing the situation, called Muslims, back to the Quran. In an environment where the general practice of Muslims is to give precedence to the exegesis of legists, fiqh, and hadith. Over the Holy Quran, Mirza Ulam Ahmad's call, back to the Quran, was indeed timely and well-founded. These ideologies, when viewed through the lens of the Holy Quran, an unsightly picture of extremism emerges. The Holy Book, we will see, indeed refutes the ideologies of misguided extremists such as ISIS we have been exposed to so much recently and still today albeit on the decline. The following Quranic teachings are therefore indispensable for all peace lovers especially all Muslims trapped in the middle of the ideological torrent of extremism and the flotsam of fanaticism, bigotry, prejudices, intolerances etc. that go with it. 1. Freedom of religion One often hears the tedious rhetoric of delusional fanatics about the merits of forced conversions as if such deplorable behavior is God-ordained. On the contrary, it is universally known that the Holy Quran teaches absolute freedom of religion with such force and clarity as not to be found in any other religious scripture of the world. Tolerance and respect for other faiths are teachings that permeate the Holy Quran. To illustrate, these are but some references from the Holy Quran which are self-explanatory, please note that all highlights for emphasis are that of the author. 2. There is no compulsion in religion. Chapter 2 verse 256 This verse serves as a Magna Carta for universal religious freedom that ought to be intrinsic to the constitutions of every country across the world. This is especially so for those Muslim-ruled countries such as Pakistan for example with its deplorable human rights record. Here is a Muslim nation that finds pride in oppressive blasphemy laws much abused by the majority with the blessing of the authorities who choose to turn a blind eye to the frequent injustices and worst kind of religious persecution that is inflicted on minority groups, in the name of the law of the land. This is the only country of note in the world where you will still come across situations where the perpetrators of the worst kind of human rights abuses are applauded as heroes in a frenzy of vulgar patriotism. Here, the rare voices of justice are often summarily silenced by the assassin's bullet to the sinister glee of fanatical clerics who hold sway over millions of blind, sheep-like followers, who in turn, through their sheer numbers, force politicians to comply to their whims and fancies. Often these fanatical extremists are under a delusion that it is their pious duty to bring the whole world to a state of belief. We will show that this self-imposed authority has no basis in the Holy Quran. In fact, the Holy Quran is full of statements showing that belief in this or that religion is a person's concern and that he is given the free choice of adopting one way or another.
if he accepts the truth, it is for his good, if he sticks to error, it is to his detriment. The following statements are self-explanatory. And if thy Lord had pleased, all those who are in the earth would have believed, all of them. Will you then force people till they are believers? Chapter 10 verse 99 The truth is from your Lord, so let him who please believe and let him who please disbelieve. Chapter 18 verse 29 The Holy Prophet Muhammad, s, the divinely appointed messenger of God, was made clear by Almighty God what his role was, and indeed coercion, compulsion, force etc. were not part of it, so how can it be assumed that such behavior is fine for his weak followers? The Holy Quran is clear on the limited role of the Holy Prophet, s your duty, O Prophet, is only the delivery of the message, and ours, God's, is to call, people, to account. Chapter 13 verse 40 And you, O Prophet, are not one to compel them. So remind by means of the Quran him who fears my warning. Chapter 50 verse 45 And obey Allah and obey the Messenger, but if you turn away, the duty of our Messenger is only to deliver the message. Chapter 64 verse 12 See also chapter 5 verse 92. It is quite clear from these statements that God alone comes between a man and his conscience, and he alone stands in judgment of man. Even the great prophet of Islam was limited to deliver the message only and to lead by example and not by force. 3. Islam recognizes all religions. Addressing the whole of humankind, the Holy Quran states, For every one of you we appointed a law in a way. And if Allah had pleased he would have made you one religious community, but he wishes to try you in what he has given you. So vie with one another in virtuous deeds. To Allah you will all return, and he will then tell you about your differences. Chapter 5 verse 48 It is taught here that all religions preach the doing of good according to their revealed laws, and their followers should, therefore, try to outdo each other in virtuous deeds. Differences in doctrine will always be there as long as we are on this earth, the consequences of our beliefs and actions, whether good or bad, will be manifested in the afterlife. There is, therefore, no need for religious disputes, the only things that Muslims are taught to say to people of other faiths, are, Allah is our Lord and your Lord. For us are our deeds and for you, your deeds. There is no contention between us and you. Allah will gather us together, and to him is the eventual coming. Chapter 42 verse 15 The Holy Prophet Muhammad, s, lived by the word of the Holy Quran and illustrated by way of personal example how to implement and practice religious tolerance and not merely pay lip service to it. Four Christians pray in the Holy Prophet's mosque. There is a well-known event that took place a year or so before the death of the Holy Prophet, s, that illustrates his strong commitment to the freedom of religion. A large contingent of Christians from Najran, near Yemen, headed by their religious leaders, came to meet him and discussed with him the doctrinal differences between Islam and Christianity, especially whether Jesus was mortal or divine. Upon their arrival, the Holy Prophet lodged them in rooms connected with his mosque. Before the discussion began, the time came for the Christians to hold their prayer and they inquired from him where they could pray. The Prophet invited them to say their prayers inside his mosque.
This incident is recorded in the biographies of the Prophet and serves as an example to all generations of Muslims on the high level of hospitality expected of a Muslim host. 5. Invite to Islam peacefully. Call to the way of your Lord with wisdom and goodly exhortation and argue with them in the best manner. Surely your Lord knows best him who strays from his path, and he knows best those who go aright. Chapter 16 verse 125 Wisdom here means to appeal to reason and knowledge, and not to exploit people's prejudices and ignorance. Goodly exhortation is to give good advice and to inspire goodness in others. If differences do arise, Muslims are cautioned and advised to argue in the best manner. This means you are to present the truth backed by solid evidence and facts in a manner that is becoming and polite, with due consideration for the sensitivities of others. 6. Tolerance Towards Idol Worship Every Muslim is called upon to exercise tolerance and respect even for the idols of others to avoid unnecessary conflict. And if Allah had pleased, they would not have worshipped others, besides God. But we have not appointed you, O Prophet, as a keeper over them, and you are not placed in charge of them. And abuse not those whom they call upon besides Allah, lest, exceeding the limits, they abuse Allah through ignorance. Thus, to every people have we made their deeds fair-seeming, then to their Lord is their return so he will inform them of what they did. Chapter 6 verses 107 to 108 The Holy Prophet, S., is clearly told that he has not been appointed to be the keeper over such idolatrous communities and that he has not been placed in charge of them. This applies equally to all Muslims, especially those fanatical self-appointed defenders of the faith. Again, God alone is the judge and eventually it is he who will inform them of what they did. 5. All places of worship should be protected. The shameless violation by Muslim extremists of the Quranic injunction to protect all places of worship, is a disgrace to the proud legacy of justice, fairness and religious tolerance of Muslim governance throughout history. By desecrating churches and mosques, Extremists have placed themselves in the position of the much-loathed perpetrators that the Holy Quran warns against and calls on all right-minded people to repel. And if Allah did not repel some people by others, cloisters, and churches, and synagogues, and mosques in which Allah's name is much remembered, would have been pulled down. And surely Allah will help him who helps him. Surely Allah is strong, mighty. Chapter 22 verse 40 this verse is unique in the realm of religious scriptures. Not only is it incumbent on all Muslims to show tolerance and respect for all other faiths, but they should be in the forefront to protect all places of worship when it comes under attack by religious forces. Here the places of worship of all Abrahamic faiths are mentioned by name which goes to show Islam makes no distinction when it comes to the preservation of all places of worship. A similar injunction is not to be found in the Torah or the Gospels. So Muslims are expected to lead by example when it comes to religious tolerance because that is what the Holy Quran demands of them. 7. Unprovoked, aggressive wars and murder prohibited. Unprovoked, aggressive wars and murder are prohibited and a clear warning is sounded for all terrorists who commit atrocities in the name of Islam. There is no ambiguity about these very clear commandments of the Holy Quran and Muslim educators would do a great service to Islam if they prioritized these teachings in their syllabuses. And fight in the way of Allah against those who fight against you but be not aggressive. Surely Allah loves not the aggressors. 
Chapter 2 verse 190 And if they incline to peace, incline thou also to it, and trust in Allah. Surely he is the hearer, the knower. Chapter 8 verse 61 And help one another in righteousness and piety and help not one another in sin and aggression, and keep your duty to Allah. Surely Allah is severe in requiting, evil, dot. Chapter 5 verse 2 O you who believe, devour not your property among yourselves by illegal methods except that it be through trading by your mutual consent. And kill not your people. Surely Allah is ever merciful to you. Chapter 4 verse 29 And whoso does this aggressively and unjustly, we shall soon cast him into fire. And this is ever easy for Allah. Chapter 4 verse 30 Whilst defensive wars are permitted for good reasons, all forms of aggression, killings and murder are prohibited. If the enemy stops hostilities and raises the flag of peace, Muslims are told to stop all fighting and resort to peaceful means of resolving disputes even if the enemy might be insincere. Eight rebellion, tyranny and acts of terror are expressly prohibited. Islam prohibits all acts of rebellion, tyrannical rule, and all acts of terror that cause upheavals and undue disruption in society. The Arabic word used in the Holy Quran to describe these acts is baghai. Say, my Lord forbids only indecencies, such of them as are apparent and such as are concealed, and sin and unjust rebellion, baghai. Dot. Chapter 7 verse 33 Surely Allah enjoins justice and the doing of good, to others, and the giving to the kindred, and he forbids indecency and evil and rebellion. He admonishes you that you may be mindful. Chapter 16 verse 90 Hundreds of thousands of innocent men, women and children have died and became misplaced as a result of the uncalled for rebellion that took place in Libya and Syria and the mayhem created in Iraq by ISIS supported by foreign nations with their own selfish agendas. The Libyans and Syrians, prior to the wars, had a fairly safe and high standard of living, enjoyed many social benefits that Westerners merely dream of. Christians and Yazidis were living in peace with Muslims. So what was the reason to rebel? Rebels emerged from factional extremist groups with military and financial support from the Saudis and the West using them for their proxy wars to gain power in the region. The rebellion was the work of minority mischief-makers of which the majority of peaceful law-abiding citizens were not part of. These Muslim factions who brazenly disobeyed the command of Almighty Allah not to rebel, Baghai, must now take most of the blame for the ruin and suffering that followed. The Holy Quran is replete with narratives highlighting the woeful end of those who chose to defy the will and guidance of the All-Wise, Lord of the Worlds in pursuit of their own misguided, selfish ends. If regime change was indeed a pressing need, Shura i.e. bilateral consultations is prescribed in Islam as the primary mode of action and not aping Western-style aggression and unbridled violence that lead to a state of anarchy. This applies to both the ruler and ruled, and their rule is by counsel among themselves, chapter 42 verse 38. Pardon them and ask protection for them, and take counsel with them in affairs of state. Chapter 3 verse 159. When faced with a tyrant, nonviolent protestation or some form of passive resistance is allowed. The Holy Prophet Muhammad, S., is reported to have said, The most excellent jihad is the uttering of truth in the presence of an unjust ruler. Tirmidhi, Mishkat.
If the desired change is beyond reach, then as a last resort it is recommended to migrate and seek refuge in another country, have we not made the earth an expanse, chapter 78 verse 6. The taking up of arms and resorting to violent rebellion is prohibited in Islam and should be avoided at all costs especially so in a country where you are free to worship and do not face religious oppression and persecution. Rebellion is classed with acts that are regarded as evil and indecent in the Holy Quran to show the severity of its disapproval in the sight of God. And we can see why. The Holy Prophet, S, said, he who dislikes an order of his Amir, ruler, should withhold himself from opposition, for he who rebels against the king by a span dies the death of ignorance, Bukhari Book 93 Number 2. Have we not witnessed the meaningless horrors sufficiently that such upheavals create in the world? In the end, it is always the innocent women and children that suffer while greedy warmongers with their thriving arms industries laugh all the way to the bank. Syrians, interviewed by a journalist, Mona Mahmoud, of The Guardian in March 2015, expressed mixed reactions that consisted of much confusion and bewilderment about the rebellion. Although there were those, who supported the rebellion, not knowing why, many were against it. Um Naji, 45, a mother of three was one of many. She gave a good insight of what was happening on the ground, the truth is that before the uprising we all had a good life, even middle class families. They could go on holiday, eat well and buy medicine. Those who were demonstrating were bribed, people were paid to buy weapons and kill their brothers. Other protesters were disillusioned and were given promises they would be leaders in a new government. Those who protested and claimed that they wanted freedom had personal interests, not a national goal. They were the first people to send their families abroad and then they joined them. The government provided people with coupons for basic food items, which the FSA, rebels, confiscated for themselves. Their commanders became rich from hijacking trucks loaded with goods heading to Damascus. Today, large parts of Libya and Syria are lying in ruins. Syria will have to go through many, many years of healing. With Assad still in control, we ask with utter despondency, so what has this misplaced rebellion achieved? Except untold misery and destruction? Did it bring about stability and a higher standard of living or more freedom? After the death of approximately 500,000 people, Syrians, nay all Muslims, should ask themselves, would it not have been better to have rather obeyed Allah's command not to engage in rebellion which he has strictly forbidden? After all, Muslims are reminded of this divine decree every Friday from the pulpits of every mosque around the world. Let this be a lesson to all Muslims not to ignore the commandments of Almighty God. 9. All kinds of suicidal acts are prohibited. The lowest form of indoctrination that evil-minded extremists with malevolent political agendas often resort to is to persuade vulnerable youths to commit atrocities with the false belief that they will enter heaven as martyrs. The Holy Quran prohibits all forms of suicidal acts and destruction of human life. The verse below clearly warns against such suicidal acts and immediately follows up with a command to do good to others instead. This is not what suicide bombers are doing when large numbers of innocent people are killed in open public places even in the sanctity of places of worship. The Holy Quran commands clearly, and do not cast yourself to destruction with your own hands and do good, to others. Surely Allah loves the doers of good. Chapter 2 Verse 195 
and help one another in righteousness and piety and help not one another in sin and aggression, and keep your duty to Allah. Surely Allah is severe in requiting, evil, dot. Chapter 5 verse 2 Whoever kills a person, unless it is for murder or mischief in the land, it is as though he had killed all men. And whoever saves a life, it is as though he had saved the lives of all men. Chapter 5 verse 32 These verses underscore the importance placed on the sanctity of human life in Islam. Any form of unjust killing is a grave sin the severity of which is equal to killing all men. In fact, the clear commandments of the Holy Quran which blinded extremists conveniently ignore are to engage in the doing of good and to partake in acts of righteousness and piety. This means we have to go out of our way to save human lives and preserve the environment, fight diseases and illiteracy, work for the uplifting of the living standards of humanity, take care of the needy and disadvantaged, etc. Self-destruction and the mass destruction of human lives, therefore, have no place in Islam. 10. It is unlawful to keep sex slaves. Unfair, blinkered critics of Islam like to portray Islam as a religion that advocates female gender abuse. Unfortunately, the behavior of Muslim subscribers of the ideologies of the likes of ISIS and other extremists, do not help much to eradicate this misconception. These warped ideologies, it has been adequately proven, has absolutely no basis in the Holy Quran, the ultimate primary source of obedience of a Muslim. Anything that contradicts the Holy Quran including spurious reports attributed to the Prophet Muhammad, s, should be summarily rejected. Nothing can supersede the word of God. If we now turn our attention to the Holy Quran, we will find that it is unlawful for a Muslim to force women into marriage, O oh you who believe it is not lawful to take women as heritage against, there, will. Chapter 4 verse 19 Moreover, taking women as sex slaves, was expressly prohibited. This was groundbreaking reform brought about by Islam at a time when slavery was still very much entrenched in the Arabian society. We, therefore, find that although Islam abolished slavery completely, it could unfortunately not wish it away overnight much like the remnants of racism here and everywhere else in the world, cannot be wished away. Thus, Islam made provision for the rights of slaves as we see here in the Holy Quran, and marry those among you who are single and those who are fit among your male slaves and your female slaves, chapter 24 verse 32. So, marry them with the permission of their masters and give them their dowries justly, they being chaste not fornicating nor take them as paramours. i.e. mistresses, concubines, sex slaves etc., chapter 4 verse 25. Thus we find that only legal marriages entered into without force, and with due consequential rights and obligations for both spouses, are allowed in Islam. The Holy Quran prohibits taking women as mistresses or concubines for sex purposes only, a practice more common in the free sex culture of Western societies now on the increase with the introduction of the Internet. 11. There are lessons in ancient history and relics. Another tragic act of idiocy and cowardice of extremists such as ISIS is the wanton destruction of ancient artifacts. This is typical Wahhabi-style cleansing rituals, a form of extremism which has seen even much prized relics of our Holy Prophet, s, his family and companions, destroyed. 
The Holy Quran nowhere advocates the destruction of ancient relics and the eradication of the historical records of past generations. On the contrary, it views it as a source of knowledge for future generations to build on. The Holy Quran states, in their histories, there is certainly a lesson for men of understanding, chapter 12 verse 111. Do they not travel in the land and see what the end of those before them was? They were more numerous than these and greater in strength and fortifications in the land, chapter 40 verse 82. There are indeed intellectual and moral lessons in archaeological findings that adorn our museums and libraries. The Greeks, we know, contributed much to modern civilization, but their knowledge was buried and lost to the world for centuries until Muslim scholars unearthed much of it, translated it into Arabic and made it accessible to the world. The maniacs who now deem it fit to run around destroying these treasures of knowledge belong in an institution for the mentally sick. Conclusion Ideologies that lead to religious intolerance, that stir up rebellion, the carrying out of mass destruction of innocent, men, women and children, the engagement in forced conversions, the desecration and destruction of places of worship regardless of whose religion it belongs to, the ill-treatment of women, and the suppression of knowledge, have no home in the Holy Quran, which is the only true guide for all Muslims the generation now and next. We strongly condemn all acts of aggression and terror including all violations of basic human rights specifically those carried out in the name of religion or state. End of article. End of the January issue of The Light.